This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, marketing political ideas, public health, foreign policy, and presidential campaigns. We've got Howard Wolfson, deputy mayor of New York City, talking to us about Mayor Bloomberg's controversial proposal to ban supersized servings of sugary drinks. Then Gordon Gjandro, deputy press secretary to President George W. Bush, on plugging leaks in the national security apparatus of the United States. And a bonus, Joshua Green of Bloomberg Businessweek, out with a story this week titled, Obama's CEO, Jim Messina, has a president to sell. A great show this week, and I'm joined once again as guest co-host by my friend Kevin Sullivan, who is communications director for President George W. Bush. Kevin, welcome back to Polyoptics. Thank you so much for spending some more time with us another hour this week. Hey, great to be here, Josh. Another good lineup of uh, guests this week. So one thing that's going to be happening as we're on the air this weekend is... Uh, Governor Romney taking a page from sort of the Democratic playbook 1992. He's going out on a bus tour, isn't he? He is. It, it's uh, interesting. Five days, six states, uh, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, which would not have been on the list probably before the unsuccessful recall for Governor Walker, and then uh, finishing up in Iowa and Michigan. And this is his shot to hit Main Street. That's the goal, to show he can be a regular guy, connect with people. I thought it was interesting in the... Uh, the McClatchy newspaper story, there was uh, a quote from the director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, saying, quote, I've always been suspicious of people with white shirts and blue jeans. Terry Madonna said that. And so this is Governor Romney's chance to show Main Street that he can connect with them and be a regular guy. And the stakes are high for Governor Romney to make his case. And of course, it's going to be all about the economy. If you were in the campaign hierarchy, uh, in the polyoptic campaign hierarchy of Governor Romney's campaign, as we know Adam Belmar now is, would you dispatch a high-def camera to go on the uh, back riser of all these events and take video of Governor Romney next to people like Rick Santorum of Pennsylvania, Kelly Ayotte of New Hampshire, Rob Portman of Ohio, and see if that can be brought into some mall testing to see what the chemistry is for potential vice presidential tickets? Well, I know there's a sense already that this is the audition tour for, for potential uh, running mates. I'd make it about the regular people. I'd take that high-definition uh, camera and and uh, get footage of the governor interacting you know, with, with regular people. And not just kissing babies in the fake kind of rope line uh, sense, but do some backroom uh, roundtables with regular people. Ask them about their concerns. Get into the kitchen table issues, all doubling back to his message about the, what he can do to fix the economy. Yeah, I think next week on Polyoptics, it'll be fascinating because we will we will get to look at a full weekend of a, of a sort of round-the-clock schedule for a candidate. We haven't seen candidates sort of burn the midnight oil as much so far this cycle and wonder how a Mitt Romney, with the nomination fully in hand, with uh, f- good fundraising behind him, with um, sort of good sort of... Uh, a punditocracy momentum behind him and sort of uh, President Obama having a, a little bit of a rough late May and early June to see if this guy through through the video through the camera 
through the lens can seem more comfortable in his skin than he has over the last year. You know, during the Salt Lake Olympics 10 years ago, uh, when I was at NBC Sports, I had the opportunity to have dinner at Governor Romney's. Of course, at that time, he was running the uh, the Salt Lake Olympics. I had, there was a dinner with 10 Olympic writers and a couple of communications people. And we were there, I don't know, three hours or something. And at the end of that evening, I would have never told you this is a guy who can't connect, who who's not a regular guy, who's not an easy person to talk to. Of course, uh, when I worked at the White House, he attended some events at the White House as governor of Massachusetts, and he never struck me as a guy that that had this much difficulty connecting with people. So again, the stakes are high for the governor on this uh, bus tour. So we're in the middle of June, Kevin, and two weeks ago, May 31st, the world was shaken alive by a proclamation from New York City Hall. And we are going right now to the middle of the bullpen in New York City Hall to talk to the deputy mayor of New York City, my good friend Howard Wolfson, who was one of the first ever guests on Polyoptics. He's going to join us to talk about the mayor's view on the ban of, of sugared drinks, on bike lanes, on, uh, on the New York City Police Department, on the national campaigns, and everything else about which Howard is an expert, among them soccer and music. So welcome live from New York City Hall, my pal, Deputy Mayor of New York City, Howard Wolfson. Welcome back, sir. Well, good to be with you from the belly of the beast here at uh, City Hall in the bullpen. So, uh, you know I'm a huge consumer, Howard, of, of media and commentary. And I have to say, having followed closely uh, the story of uh, the, the proposed ban on sugar drinks from its very start at the end of May until today, I would call the coverage pretty balanced. Uh, you've got some detractors, you've got some proponents, people like Frank Bruni, people like, uh, um, it, it, and it's, it's sort of all over the map. So you're not a naive uh, director of communications. You know that you're coming up with an, an issue that is going to have people on both sides. What, what I don't think people have heard a lot uh, as yet is the weeks and months before May 31st, how did you come about and how did the mayor's office come about saying, let's propose a ban on sugar drinks in servings above 16 ounces and, and what did you expect to come out of it? You're the first person to ask the TikTok question, so uh, so kudos. Well, um, we're polyoptics. We're totally into TikTok. <laughs> um, I'll give you a little bit of a flavor. So uh, the idea was uh, generated uh, from our health department and was based on the best set of uh, health recommendations and sound science that um, our folks there could come up with. Um, it was presented to the mayor. Um, he looked at it, um, thought it was a good idea. Uh, he asked me what uh, I thought the reaction would be in the press, um, and I said I thought that it would get uh, an enormous amount of attention because it's one of these issues that almost everybody can relate to. And um, frankly, there are fewer and fewer of those issues uh, around. But this is a, a, a perfect issue uh, for every possible audience because everybody in the country drinks soda or knows somebody who drinks soda. And I said I thought that it would uh, the initial polling would probably be somewhere in the neighborhood of 40, 60 against us. Um, and uh, he uh, considered that. Um, he made the decision to go ahead based on the merits. 
And frankly, uh, the prediction around the uh, amount of attention uh, the issue was going to get uh, came true. I, I um, was not surprised by how much conversation there has been around this. It really is a perfect kind of water cooler issue or a Coke machine issue, or if you will. Um, uh, I was um, uh, pleasantly surprised, frankly, how well the issue was polled. It's you know, roughly 50-50. It's a little bit against us. Um, uh, certainly, um, when the mayor uh, banned smoking in bars, there was an awful lot of opposition back at the beginning of his tenure. Um, this feels somewhat similar to that. A lot of noise on both sides. A lot of people feeling passionate. Um, I believe uh, absolutely the right thing to do, and I think you know this will be like the smoking ban, one of those things that people look back on and say it was a great idea. Why didn't anybody do it before? Howard, I noticed earlier this week Dr. Foreman on the Board of Health uh, really fired up the Frappuccino Caucus by suggesting that the milk drinks be, you know, milk and coffee drinks be included. Do you think there's uh, that that kind of uh, suggestion will work against you? Do you think the, the the board will try to expand what the what the mayor had in mind? What do you think happens next? Well, I don't want to prejudge the outcome of the uh, board process. These are a, a group of pretty distinguished health experts, and they're going to consider our proposal uh, on merits. Uh, it was not part of our proposal because uh, our health commissioner, Dr. Farley, uh, who really is an expert uh, in this field, uh, felt that uh, sugary soda was in a somewhat unique category um, because uh, uh, it is a uh, unique contributor to the obesity epidemic uh, and uh, that the calories themselves are empty. Uh, you don't get any nutritional value from drinking a uh, can of Coke, or actually a can of Coke would not be affected by this, or a 20-ounce uh, bottle of Coke, uh, whereas a, a drink with milk uh, would have some, uh, some nutritional value. So uh, we're going to look at all of, uh, uh, all of this. The health, uh, health board is obviously going to look at all of it, uh, but our proposal uh, is what we think would be the best thing. I thought that the Today Show interview with Matt Lauer last week and Mayor Bloomberg was almost surreal to see Matt aggressively going after the mayor on the subject of Donut Day. I know that the timing of that was a little awkward from a polyoptic standpoint, but you know the the you know this is ridiculous, and the mayor calmly said it's not ridiculous, and he explained his his position. But when when the mayor came to you with this and asked you how it would go over, at what point did did the Donut Day proclamation come into your mind, and did that ever weigh in that maybe you needed to change the timing on the on the the sugary drinks ban? Um, I was not aware that it was <laughs> National Donut Day. I have uh, I have a lot of uh, important uh, things on my calendar. Uh, that was not one of them. Uh, it turned out that it was National Donut Day, and maybe somebody clever in a news organization or at the uh, beverage uh, group uh, found that out. You know, it, it, it reminds me of uh, of something that Hillary Clinton once said to me, which is stuff like that is really just background noise. Uh, it's uh, I think it makes, frankly, the questioner uh, look sillier than the person who's answering the question. No, nobody is going to make uh, in the public a judgment about uh, whether this is a good idea or a bad idea based on the fact that uh, the city had a proclamation around donuts. Um, you know, people are smarter than that. 
uh, and they're going to consider this on the merits. There's obviously people who think it's a bad idea. You know, some people will say it's a slippery slope, and once government gets in the business of regulating the size of cups, who knows where it will lead. Other people think we've got a health crisis in this country around obesity. It's it's killing uh, our kids, and uh, and it's obviously impacting adversely the lives of so many adults, and we've got to do something. Um, but nobody's going to make a decision around uh, Donut Day. So two weeks on, you know, I, I was watching very closely the way uh, Dr. Farley and Linda Gibbs went up to the Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx to sort of lend a polyoptic element to the rollout. I'm curious about uh, reaction in the bullpen in the mayor's office about what phenomenon he has created because I would almost, despite the fact that a proud man like Mayor Bloomberg is seeing himself photoshopped with sort of a a nanny costume on and, and he's being seen as mayor nanny, that that almost the battle has already been won, not just in New York City, but in anywhere people are exposed to media commentary on this issue. Because when you do pull up to uh, the takeout uh, drive-through at McDonald's or, or going to the movie theater and getting one of these huge drinks, you just are starting to have second thoughts about it, aren't you? Well, I think the battle has been won. I think taking on the battle is is uh, half the battle. Um, look, regardless of what you think of Mike Bloomberg, uh, he is um, almost uniquely um, immune from uh, from political consideration. He doesn't hasn't taken any money from the soda industry. He hasn't taken any money from their lobbyists. He's not running for re-election. Uh, so he can really afford to do what he thinks is right on the merits, and he's been doing that, frankly, since he came into City Hall. Um, so, I, you know, raising the issue, getting the awareness out there uh, is a big part of it. And this is not going to uh, end the obesity crisis in America. Um, there's no one silver bullet. Uh, but it's important for people to begin, all of us, to begin thinking about um, what we're eating and what we're drinking and the impact on our bodies and our health. And we've done, uh, as you mentioned at the top of the show, bike lanes, we've done an awful lot to promote uh, good, healthy living in this city, and it's one of the reasons why the life expectancy in New York is uh, up uh, three years since the mayor came into office, and it's uh, ahead of, uh, of the national average. Uh, mayor jokes and says, if you want to live longer, you should move to New York. Uh, but it's not a joke. It's true. We are living longer in New York than other places, and it's in part because this is a mayor who's passionate about public health issues and has translated that passion into policy that has really made a difference. It began with the smoking ban. Uh, we did that and other places around the country and around the world followed suit. Somebody was uh, joking with me the other day and said they were in Paris and you can't, uh, you can't smoke in a restaurant in Paris anymore. Uh, who would have thought that? Well, we started that here in New York and I think uh, this, uh, this anti-obesity effort around sugary sodas is similarly going to be uh, the precursor to a lot of activity around the country because people know uh, that we've got to do something about the crisis. Given what you've done, Howard, do you open up and set out the welcome mat at City Hall for representatives of Coke and Pepsi to come in and, and make their case and, and at least have a, a dialogue? Because they have said publicly uh, that New York deserves a lot better. I mean, they've not been sort of a, a thoughtful uh, uh, speaker on the other side, but behind closed doors, have you had dialogue with the manufacturers? Well, let me say two things. I have no... Um I, I don't have any issue with how they've conducted themselves in the in public uh, since this uh, proposal was promulgated. I, I don't think that they've done anything 
um, below board. They've expressed their opposition, obviously entitled to do that. I don't, I don't uh, take issue with how they've done it. Um, uh, but to answer your question is yes, uh, we've had conversations with representatives from uh, soda industry. Uh, I was asked that question at a press conference the other day and uh, answered in the affirmative. You know, this we have an open door. Um, people are able to come in and uh, give their point of view. Um, obviously, uh, there's a difference of opinion here, but doesn't mean that we're not willing to listen and work with folks and see if there can uh, there can be common ground. So do- the door is always open. Um, and uh, and we've had we've certainly had conversations. People have expressed their strong views on the topic. So moving to, to some national politics, Howard. Um, you know, I've been keeping my eye to to the way things have been going as President Obama has been really ramping up his re-election effort. Uh, I've watched uh, President Clinton on with Harvey Weinstein doing a, uh, a guest stint for uh, on CNN, and he. St- talk sort of honestly about Mitt Romney's business career, I've seen Cory Booker uh, talk about the uh, effect of trying to uh, characterize venture capital, seen Ed Rendell do the same thing. Uh, what's your take on sort of the, the left backlash against people who are giving a little more sort of centrist message when it comes to how we talk about politics today? Well, surrogacy can be a, a tricky business. Um, it can be a tricky business if you're the surrogate because you have some obligation to toe the party line, even if you don't always necessarily agree with it. And it can be a tricky business if you are uh, in the business of managing surrogates because sometimes people go off message. Um, uh, this was probably easier in the days before there was an inexhaustible need for surrogates to be on television and radio. Um, when you have to fill 24 hours or you know, maybe not 24, 18 hours in uh, cable coverage with surrogates, uh, it puts a premium on making sure the surrogate stays on message, is well briefed. And uh, as you guys know, uh, presidential campaigns, uh, party committees have very, very robust surrogacy operations to uh, both make sure that uh, surrogates uh, are comfortable uh, uh, giving the talking points and uh, then are booked uh, at places that want them. So this is a very, very big part of uh, the presidential campaign apparatus. I'm actually surprised that there hasn't really been more in-depth reporting about just how much time, energy, and effort goes into training, educating, uh, indoctrinating, if you will, um, uh, surrogates and then placing them on, on TV and radio. It's a very, very big part of what campaigns do now. Absolutely. I mean, we're not only on the three examples that we cited, but of course, um, the the reaction to Hillary Rosen's appearance about uh, Ann Romney a few weeks ago was was part and parcel of that. Well, sometimes, and 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 uh, in fairness to the campaign, sometimes this can be confusing because you have uh, a surrogate who is uh, representing the campaign, but you also have um, quote unquote democratic strategists uh, who may be employed by the cable company to give a uh, uh, a left or a right perspective, but are not necessarily surrogates per se, but are perceived by the public to be surrogates. So uh, in the case of Hillary Rosen, you know, she wasn't really speaking for the campaign. She wasn't a campaign representative. I think she was a paid contributor to CNN, but there is a perception in the country that when she's on TV that she uh, is speaking for the campaign. So that makes it even even more complicated. Howard, before you went to work for Mayor Bloomberg, you, you had your stint as a contributor at Fox News Channel. I, I suppose still the 
most accomplished or you know, highest ranking Democratic strategist that 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 Fox News Channel has has had on board. I'm curious as to you know I remember you you reading quotes that you said when you departed that it was a good experience. You know what was that like, and what did your friends think of your your role there? And 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 uh, and looking back on it, how do you feel about that time? Well, you know, again, I, I uh, something that um, then uh, Senator Clinton said to me, I, I took to heart. You know, she believed that it was important for uh, campaigns and candidates to speak uh, to all voters across all media, and you don't leave any stone unturned. And it's not a good idea to have an entire network. Uh, with a very large audience, uh, go essentially uncovered. And, um, you know, during the camp- presidential campaign, we used to put people on Fox. Uh, we we understood uh, that probably uh, there were a lot of Republicans watching, but we thought there were some Democrats watching, too, and we wanted their votes. And uh, I thought it was important when uh, then-Senator Clinton uh, left the presidential campaign to be in a position to be helpful to the Democratic Party and go on uh, and make the case for, for President Obama as best as I could, uh, which I did. Um, was proud to support uh, then-Senator Obama, now President Obama, after he defeated uh, Senator Clinton. Uh, and uh, I have uh, had a very positive experience. Um, uh, and would uh, you know would would do it uh, do it all over again? After years in Washington and now with your role as deputy mayor, how, how do you compare and contrast the the press corps in D.C. versus New York? You you made an interesting comment to to Josh a few minutes ago when you said he was the first guy to ask the TikTok question of the the mayor's uh, sugary drink proposal. Uh, that was my experience in my five years at NBC Universal. Then I went to Washington and I, I noticed immediately how the Washington press corps was obsessed with process. What, uh, how, do, how do you find in the, the difference between the, the, the reporters in the two different uh, mega media markets? Well, it's a good question. Let me, let me say this, um, and I say this to uh, young people who are entering the uh, communications business and politics in New York. There is no better place to be a press secretary or a communications director for a politician than New York City. Uh, we have the most robust media market uh, in the country, if not the world. Uh, we've got uh, uh, four daily newspapers uh, covering what we do. We have uh, TV stations with robust political coverage. We've got uh, enormous numbers of uh, uh, specialty media, uh, Spanish-language media, uh, other kinds uh, of media, uh, a huge number of weekly newspapers. Uh, so we are very busy uh, dealing with the press corps we have, and I can only imagine what it would be like to be a press secretary for a mayor in a city that uh, uh, may not even have one daily newspaper. Imagine, you know, working in New Orleans uh, when you, you the daily newspaper is, is not going to be publishing daily anymore. So we're very lucky in that sense to be in a really robust media environment. It makes it interesting. Doesn't mean that it's always fair. Doesn't mean that I always like what they report, but it. It keeps you on your toes, and and if you're interested in being at the top of the game, your game, it will help you be at the top of your game. So, uh, if you're going to do what we do uh, anywhere uh, in a municipal context, this would be the place to do it. Um, uh, you know, the the, the media coverage uh, is different uh, in Washington than it is in New York, but um, both uh, are very aggressive. There there may be a little bit more focus on process in. Um, uh, in Washington than New York, I think in part that's 
due to the fact that uh, a, a lot of stories get written around the legislative process uh, in Washington, how a bill becomes a law. We don't have as much of that here. Um, the, we work very collaboratively with our city council, so there's not as much conflict between the executive branch and the legislative branch, and uh, the process around passing legislation is much less tortured here than it, it is in Washington. So there's there's almost definitionally more process stories in Washington around the legislative process. Um, so th yeah, I think you're right. There's probably more process stories uh, going on in uh, in Washington, but that may be because there's more process that people are seeing. So Howard, we got to let you get back to the bullpen. Uh, but this week. Uh one of those very interesting and challenging moments with the New York media uh, comes about. I think you're waking up in the morning, you're looking at the opinion pages, and you're seeing, you know, the the vaunted uh, media organization of this city, the New York Times, publish a video under the headline, The Scars of Stop and Frisk. It's the story of Taekwon Brayon, a young man in Brooklyn who says he was stopped more than 60 times by police before the age of 18. And you tweet very early in the morning, confused. Is the Open Society Foundation under, underwriting agitprop filmmaking specifically for the New York Times website? Can you share with our listeners what that's all about and then how eight hours worth of tweeting and communication where you are at the end of that news cycle in terms of answering your confusion? Yeah, I was just literally confused um, and sincerely confused around what the relationship was between people who made the video in the New York Times. I was not aware that the Times had been in the practice of, um, I don't know whether they commissioned it or whether it had been solicited or whether it had just been sort of dropped in their lap, but um, solicited or or taken, I guess would be the most neutral way to put it, uh, taken content paid for uh, or commissioned by some other entity with a, with a point of view and put it on their website. Um, you know, I, I, it's funny, I engaged in some conversations on Twitter with, with folks who made the case that, you know, there's really not much different between somebody who is paid by a think tank and writes an op-ed versus somebody who is paid by a think tank and makes a movie. Um, I just, I guess I'd never really seen that before and was surprised by it. Um, uh, but the case was made to me, I think, uh, somewhat convincingly that uh, in the new world we live in, there's not much difference between, again, somebody who might be paid uh, to write op-eds versus somebody who's paid uh, to make videos. That's uh, fascinating, Howard. And, you know, everything that, that you are doing uh, and that Mayor Bloomberg is engaged in in this, the final years of his, of his third term in office have been fascinating, from the ban on sugary drinks to the moment that he uh, embraces Goldman Sachs after the uh, the Greg Smith article, I mean, this is a this is a rare politician who is unencumbered by re-election or finance to be able to speak his mind. And, and you, as his spokesman, as communications director, are in an amazing position. Thanks again for coming back on. Uh, hope you can come back on again in the future. I uh, look forward to it. Thank you so much. So, Kevin, that was a great talk we just had with Howard Wolfson, bringing us up to date on all things New York City. And as you know, Howard was a, as, is an old and good friend of mine. We've worked together in politics for many years, and we remain good friends. For our second segment, we have another good friend of Polyoptics, but a great friend of yours, don't we? 
We do, Josh. Gordon Jandro is joining us. Uh, Gordon, one of the great resumes you'll find in Washington, worked on the Bush campaign in 2000, went right from there to the White House press office. He was the original press secretary at the Department of Homeland Security when it was uh, stood up in 2003, went from there to be uh, press secretary to the First Lady, an interesting uh, switch from DHS to to the uh, east wing of the White House. From there, Gordon served as the Director of Strategic Communications at the State Department. And then uh, the last uh, two and a half years of President Bush's time in office, Gordon was the National Security Council spokesperson. He's now a VP at APCO, one of the fine public affairs firms in Washington working on international government relations and corporate communications. Gordo, thanks for joining us on Polyoptics. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get to national security issues and weighty matters such as the Justice Department investigation mm-hmm. into leaks of of uh, sensitive material. Uh, you know, the pinnacle in communications really is, is is to be the press secretary at the White House and to get to, to brief reporters from from the vaunted uh, White House briefing room. You, you you got to do that once or twice and you and you briefed reporters many times I know from from Crawford, Texas, when you were there with the, with the president, oftentimes when he was entertaining a world leader. Uh, what is it like, what was it like the very first time that you stood before those reporters representing the president of the United States in that formal briefing setting? Well, it was a, uh, it was a little nerve-wracking, as you can imagine, uh, but I got uh, very well prepared with the help of a lot of um, Smart policy people, my colleagues in the in the press office, the other deputy press secretaries, and I went out and did this did this briefing, and uh, was so relieved uh, to be done with it, and was walking away from the podium, and a, a reporter that I've known for uh, over a decade came up to me and said, "Hey, you did a great job doing the briefing, but you you really should have dabbed your upper lip." And I said, "Well, thanks so much for saying that, but I was always told that." Uh, you know, you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't do that because then then people will think that you're nervous. And he said, "Well, yes, that's true, but you really, really needed to dab your upper lip." <laughs> <laughs> like Albert Brooks in uh, yeah, broadcast. News. Exactly, exactly. I don't remember it being uh, being quite that sweaty, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, it was. It's, it's great to have you on the show. How 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 do you prepare to brief reporters? You usually you can anticipate the the tough questions, but what was your routine like when you when you would brief? Sure. It was, um, you know, you, you, you're paying attention to the news day in and day out, so you have an idea of, of what's going on and what reporters are going to ask you about and what the breaking news is of the day. But, you know, the most important part is getting prepared with the facts from the policy staff. And so I was often talking with National Security Advisor Steve Hadley uh, or the, the president himself or Press Secretary Dana Perino or other policy experts, State Department, Defense Department, to get the facts and then make those in, into a simple statements and answers as possible. And the most important thing was um, not to change U.S. policy uh, from the beginning of the briefing to the end. Yeah, if you mess up in that role, you can cause an international incident, so the stakes are, are pretty high. Yeah. Uh, and, and now that you're dealing with, in the private sector, doing corporate communications and, and government affairs internationally even, how, how do you find the difference between the practice of communications, you know, White House, State Department versus the private sector in dealing with corporate communications people? People like, like what Josh does now. Right, right. Well, I think um – Josh understands the way Washington works, and that's a huge asset to the company he's he's with now. And that's what we find that a lot of a lot of companies just don't understand how Washington works, or the the intersection 
between Congress and the White House and think tanks and and the news media that in, in the Beltway is sort of a unique beast all to itself. And then um, uh, for companies dealing in international markets, how do those various capitals work? How does Beijing work and Delhi work? And how do they work back with Washington, D.C.? So it's interesting. It's it's similar to a lot of the work that we did uh, in the White House. Um, but, uh, you know, businesses have a, have a different objective, not necessarily pushing out policy, but to um, earn a profit and return on investment. So, Gordon, I, I want to take you back. I, I, I'm, I'm wading through Robert Caro's great book, Path to Power, about uh, Lyndon Johnson and the early years of his presidency and his vice presidency. And there's, a, there's an incredible scene, obviously, November 22nd, 1963, Parkland Hospital. The president looks, uh, is the new president, uh, having become president upon the death of Jack Kennedy, uh, looks at a young PR man who he's uh, known in Texas, but not all too well, named Jack Valenti, and says, we're going to Washington, you're coming with us. And while the circumstances were far different in 2000, we had on the show a few weeks ago, Mike Feldman and Chip Smith, who were both in Nashville uh, when uh, the disputed election between Bush v. Gore began on that evening with the uh, projection of George W. Bush as the next president of the United States and then uh, the walk back of that and then the uh, six-week fight over the recount and then ultimately the Supreme Court decision. You were there. You were there not only in Governor Bush's campaign but in the subsequent eight years of his presidency. We got a really dramatic taste of that night from the likes of Feldman and Smith can we hear how it was, what what it was like in Austin and going through that evening? Sure. I, you know, as a matter of fact, I think Mike Feldman called my cell phone from his cell phone to connect <laughs> Vice President Gore with then Governor Bush. Um, and I'm glad to say I've, I've known Mike now for a few years and what a good guy he is. Uh, um, it was a dramatic night. Um, obviously, everyone's exhausted from campaigning, you know, for the last 18 months and traveling the country and not eating very well and not sleeping very much. And uh, you get to the end, and you're you're just relieved and and glad that it's all going to be over with. And then, as the night wore on, there was um, you know total euphoria and excitement as Vice President Gore called to concede, and the networks gave the election to George W. Bush. And then total sort of shock and disbelief as the as the night kept on going on um, that uh, that it wasn't over. You know these things are supposed to end on election day. We. We, uh, you know, have gotten used to having our results by midnight, and there's a winner, and there's a concession speech and a victory speech, and then we begin a transition, and and that was not to be the case. So it was a a, a roller coaster of a night, uh, from uh, total excitement of, of victory to, um, you know, sort of almost disbelief and confusion that there was going to be a recount. So uh, you were then many, so many years later, that version of Jack Valenti to uh, to George W. Bush. Were you planning on moving to Washington should the president, should Governor Bush win? And, and how did that first uh, opportunity come? What was the what was your first role working for in the transition? Sure. I think like most people who get involved in a presidential campaign, their ultimate goal is to get to the White House or get to a, a cabinet department and come to work to Washington. So I was looking forward to that. I you know honestly thought I was only going to come to Washington for about a year, and now I've been here for 12 years. Um, but I guess that happens to a lot of people as well. I started off as an assistant press secretary in the White House press office with, I think, one of the best jobs ever, and that was responsible for the 12 to 14 members of the 
president's press pool that follow him everywhere from the Oval Office to Air Force One to uh, anywhere he goes in the world. And, uh, it does take a toll on your knees, though, squatting in the, in the, yeah. uh, in the buffer, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> squatting in the buffer, uh, wearing, a, wearing a radio, it takes its toll on a lot of suits and shirts and ties as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, the press corps is uh, great. Um, you know, we have a there's an adversarial relationship, but I think it's all done in a pretty professional way. And we all spend so much time with each other between 15 passenger vans and press charters and the, the back of the president's airplane that uh, you all become a sort of a traveling, traveling family band. So, Gordo, this week, uh, the, the news continues of the Justice Department investigation into uh, alleged leaks about uh, you know the U.S. involvement in the cyber attacks in Iran, the the, the president's kill list, the, you know this notion of a double agent uh, in an Al Qaeda plan to plant a bomb on a flight bound for the U.S. and uh, you know we experienced some of that with the Valerie Plame incident and and that scenario obviously in our time uh, at the, at the White House or before we were at the White House and. You know, President Obama mounted a vigorous uh, denial and a stiff defense, you know, saying this did not happen, not in my White House. Question is, you know, how does he really know? I mean, we don't know where the leaks came from. Clearly, there were people who spoke to David Sanger uh, for that story. Do you have a theory? I mean, how does this kind of thing happen? Why does it happen? What do you what is your take on the the uh, events of, of the week? Yeah, I think that yeah, President Obama may have been a little bit out on a limb to say it didn't come from his White House without having a more thorough uh, investigation of what's going on because White Houses and National Security Councils have a lot of people on them, um, and uh, you, you just never know uh, until you get to the bottom of the issue where where a leak may have come from. Um, I think it's worth looking into. I know Congress wants to look into it and the Justice Department wants to look into it just because there were so many at the same time, uh, I also know that you know that, that this very easily could could not have been a coordinated campaign. It just could be coincidental because you see with the the State Department, Defense Department, and the intelligence agencies, a lot of people who get concerned when they're uh, they feel like their agencies are under attack, or they see the president being attacked and think that it's um, it's a criticism of of their work, especially in the counterterrorism field, and so they take it upon themselves to leak information to show progress we've made or, or some element of success. So, you know, I, I hope this was not a coordinated campaign of leaking. I think it's worth looking into. I think it's right for Congress to look into it and DOJ to look into it in a nonpartisan way and try and try and get to the bottom of it. I, you know, the biggest concern, though, is, you know, it's, it's it would be unfortunate if this was being used for politics. But the biggest concern is the damage that this can do to our national security. Um, you know, it's one thing for the Iranian, Iranians to suspect that we are um, uh, engaging in cyber warfare against them. It's another thing for us to confirm it. <laughs> it just doesn't help when you're trying to negotiate. And um, and that's sort of the um, one of the arts of communication in, in communicating national national security and classified information is is never never getting out there and admitting uh, too much because the the policy consequences can be dramatic and, and really can be a setback for the government. So I want to ask you both a question then, because, you know, I listened to like a 40 minute interview between Terry Gross and David Sanger on Fresh Air when I'm not listening to POTUS on Sirius XM channel 124. I always find the things that Sanger reports on fascinating, revealing, interesting. The story that he weaves of Olympic Games and how President Bush asked President Obama 
uh, in their transition to the White House, if that could be one of the programs that the president kept going in the way that President Bush uh, had initiated it. So I, as a citizen, taxpayer, voter, found the story really interesting and and almost gratifying to know that our uh, intelligence apparatus was as sophisticated as it turns out to be. And at the same time, Gordon, you say that um, it could be damaging to national security. I'd say sort of that the outing of Valerie Flame was at least damaging to her cover and the investment we make in a CIA operative over the over the life of her career and anyone that she is trying to protect. And so, you know, as I have made friends with many people from the Bush administration, Kevin Sullivan, Adam Belmar, Gordon Jondro, just to name three, there is this sense that we were a leak-free White House. And forgive me if I'm just not a little skeptical. And so perhaps you're not laying out every bit an item of Olympic Games to a David Sanger, but Gordon, to the extent that you had a new initiative that you wanted good, favorable coverage on, can you take us through, in as honest a way possible, the manner in which you would hopefully give it to one organization for the benefit of its exclusive and the idea that they would cover it with the most column inches and the most perspective and the most effort and not be in this mad scramble to get one bit of news that's released by Ari Fleischer or Tony Snow at the same time. Right. Well, it's it's interesting you mention uh, David Sanger because he really is the go-to person and has been for several administrations, including the Bush administration, when you want to get out complicated national security information. Um, and I think it's to your point because he understands the issues and has the space uh, in in our one of our largest newspapers uh, to write thoughtfully uh, on the issue, and um, and so he has been the go-to person. And I noticed some some press complaining, you know, about so many leaks to the New York Times. Um, it, it, it's been true for several administrations that that's where authorized leaks uh, usually go to, because aside from Sanger, they have a stable of people, um, Tom Shanker and um, and and others. Uh, who are really good in the in the national security and defense and intelligence world, and and know how to write about these things because they know a lot of the the history of them, whether it's the Iranian nuclear um, program or cybersecurity or some some defense plan. So we certainly did some authorized leaking. We certainly had some unauthorized leaks, and you know it's always funny to me as people often look at the press office as the first place because they think we because we have such good relationships with the press that will the ones that leak when in fact we're the ones that have to clean up the mess so i think you very rarely find any leaks coming from a uh, from a press office because you know we're the ones who end up having to stay up, up until midnight trying to sort through it back in december of 2005 uh i believe it was james risen and eric look of the new york times breaking the story on the terror surveillance program uh, against the wishes of, of the the bush white house uh, you know, which had claimed that it would revealing that program would jeopardize the ongoing investigations and would alert the you know would be bad guys that they that they were under under the spotlight. They did hold the story. I think, if I'm not mistaken, Gordon, for almost a year. Mm, and when right. they did report it, ultimately they did remove some details, but they did report it. The same thing happened right before I got to the White House in June of '06 with the terror finance tracking program. This notion of should they publish, you know, Josh started to make the point, you know, as a taxpayer, you like to know we're doing these things, but where is that line 
of freedom of the press and, and damaging, putting lives at risk or damaging or threatening, putting in jeopardy national security. Uh, where do you think that line is and how do you think it is, is walked these days in, in Washington? Well, it's a pretty fine line, and it's it's really tough because we, we are in an open and transparent society, and, and I think government um, tries to, to be as open and transparent as possible. But when it comes to national security and classified information, it gets more difficult. And I know I remember one time calling at the New York Times and asking, asking them not to write a story about U.S. forces that were – I believe it was a story on U.S. forces helping train – Pakistani frontier corpsmen, but they were going to be in Pakistan, and it's it's really upsetting to Pakistan when they find out that American troops are there, um, and it was really going to right. blow up diplomacy and cause all sorts of problems, or some of the problems that we read read about in the papers today. And we asked the New York Times not to publish, and they said, "Well, you know, we it's not our job to hold back news just because it upsets a policy. You know, we'll hold back news if we think lives are at risk." Uh, and so I think they they do try and uh, put a fair uh, litmus test to it. They did hold back for a year on the terrorist surveillance program. Um, I think it would have been better if they hadn't published, but but needless to say, they did. And I think the programs continue in the, in, with the right amount of, of oversight. But it's a tough and fine line, and it's a hard line, I think, for administrations to decide when they want to call a newspaper and ask them not to publish, because it's a big decision. It's a it's a big thing to do that, I think, because you don't want to be seen as doing it all the time because then you're not effective. You also don't want to be seen as trying to stifle the free press. Speaking of free press, Gordon, we had uh, Jake Tapper on the show a few weeks ago talking about the uh, time that he had uh, new Defense Secretary Panetta on uh, this week, on one of the weeks that he was co-hosting recently this spring. And, you know, Jake pressed Panetta fairly hard on the question of to what extent should the Obama re-election campaign be using imagery and message related to the uh, hunting down and killing of Osama bin Laden within campaign materials, videos, or message. Um, you know, as a polyoptic marketer, uh, I've often sort of said that you can't just vie for re-election on your domestic policy alone. And certainly, President Obama needs to cast a wider net given the way things have going. And I've, I've said it, it's, your, your foreign policy successes, whether they are in the diplomatic negotiation room or on the field of battle, are fair game to talk about and to demonstrate because we know how, how a re-election needs to be marketed. We'll be talking to Joshua Green later of Business Week about that very issue. But if where do you come down on using those kinds of things in political discourse? Yeah, I think you have to be pretty careful about how far you go with that. I mean, I think obviously, you know, hunting down and killing bin Laden is a success. You know, President Obama, you know, called it a success of multiple administrations. So I think it's it's fair to talk about it and mention it as a success in the war on terror. I just think there's only so far you can go um, in uh, in in touting it. Um, and I think both both sides have had to have had to look at this over the last over the last few years. So Gordo, at the beginning of the show in the lead-in, Josh always says we're going to pull back the curtain. And one thing that struck me when. I worked at the White House, and I was able to to accompany the president on a couple of overseas trips, and 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 seeing how things get get pre baked and cooked in advance of those trips. The language is often worked out way in advance on, you know, what's going to happen in the meeting and what's going to be in the statement and those kind of things. It it occurs to me that 
while the diplomacy is real and the relationships that are built when presidents travel around the world is productive, so often the press piece of it, the polyoptic piece of it really is for show in, in my experience. We'll talk about that a little bit, about how the, the orchestrating, the engineering of overseas events with world leaders and and, and, and how, uh, how real they are and how much it's, it's the, uh, the, the stagecraft of, uh, of uh, the presidency. Well, I think it's a combination of, of both. I mean, uh, th- there is obviously a lot of the stagecraft. It's, you know, the United States uh, of America arriving. Um, and there's no better way to do it than Air Force One and all the bells and whistles shows the power uh, and prestige of the United States and most people in, in most countries around the world, you know, regardless of what they think about U.S. policies, are still glad to glad to welcome uh, um, uh, the American president there. Uh, it is interesting, though, because the the policy is sometimes um, not anywhere. Uh, the policy discussions behind the scenes sometimes aren't related at all to much of what is talked about in the press. And um, one of the you know the best examples of that is a 2008, early 2008 trip to. Uh, the Middle East and the Gulf Coast, um, uh, the Gulf, the Persian Gulf countries. And uh, the press line was about how oil prices were so high, but the real discussions behind the scenes was about those countries' worry over Iran. Um, and But that wasn't something that we could talk about publicly. And so there was a slight disconnect behind, um, you know, what, what was going on in the uh, behind closed doors, and then actually what the, the public discussions were. While oil was a little bit of a discussion, uh, it was mainly about those those Arab countries being concerned about a, a rising Iran. So it's a, there is often a lot of difference between um, the, the quiet conversations between world leaders and then, and then what you can tell the press and the public. Gordon Jandro, former Deputy Press Secretary at the White House for National Security, currently a VP with uh, APCO, the Public Affairs uh, uh, Agency in Washington. Thanks for being with us today, Gordon. Thank you. So this week, Kevin, I I wake up to see the Twitter's abuzz to see this story from, of all places, Bloomberg Businessweek, Joshua Green, national correspondent, titled Obama's CEO, Jim Messina has a president to sell. And, you know, I've I have some friends in the Obama campaign, certainly many holdovers from the Clinton world. And I know enough about Jim Messina to be sort of very surprised that he would open up his office in Chicago and talk to a guy who's written the kind of things that Josh Green has written and describe in fairly accurate detail uh, the things that the Obama campaign is doing technologically, the mentors they've had, people like Eric Schmidt, Anna Winter, Steven Spielberg, and how that has affected their technology campaign, which was such a breakthrough in 2008 and it needs to be even more sophisticated in 2012 because re-elections are so much of a, a more gray effort. They're not about a, a brand new idea. They're about recycling idea and making it fresh again. So fresh on the heels of what I consider the perfect polyoptic story, Bloomberg Businessweek, Josh Green, thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you guys. How did you get Jim Messina sort of a fabulously reserved fellow, not likely to talk about the mentoring that he's gotten from Hollywood and Silicon Valley and Fashion Alley to tell you all about all this stuff. Um, well, I don't, I don't want to reveal all my tricks, but, uh, you know, I approached him originally and they said no, but, you know, you start doing some reporting on the story and you kind of let people know that you're going to do it one way or the other and that, you know, 
they might want to cooperate. And I think eventually I just persuaded them that, that what the piece I was looking to do was going to look at the campaign from a slightly different angle than, than reporters, political reporters traditionally do. Uh, and then I was really interested in some of the business ideas and some of the management theory and how they, how they go about running the campaign. Uh, and eventually that got me in the door with Messina. And uh, he, he turned out to be um, helpful and forthcoming, which you don't always get when you interview campaign managers. Tell me, describe for our listeners two words that I think you uh, sort of bring into the public discourse for the first time, what they mean, and maybe what you think the Obama campaign now feels seeing it in Bloomberg Businessweek. Those two words are dashboard and snowflake. <laughs> uh, well, dashboard is the social media tool slash database that the campaign's uh, tech wizards uh, spent nine months building. Uh, and the idea was to kind of build from scratch the, uh, the, the platform that's going to be at the center of the campaign. And this is something that has all the voter registration and all the, the, the information on calls and door knocks and that sort of thing. It's the sort of stuff that used to be done with a clipbook and people walking around to houses and you would knock on doors and you would read a script and you would take down people's addresses and then you go back to headquarters and spend hours uploading and all. That's all now been built into a social media database that updates in real time and that Obama's canvassers can get on use on their phone. So that's, that's dashboard. And, w- and one of the advantages is, A, you don't have to have an office or a clipboard. And B, as I understand it, for the first time, this updates in real time so that if you're walking down the street and there's a, a targeted voter, um, in the past you wouldn't have known. Maybe they just got two phone calls from the campaign and they'll be really annoyed if you knock on their door. Now all that stuff's updated so you know uh, where and when to approach a potential voter. So it's partly it's, it's efficiency, and, and I think the thinking is that this just helps them uh, expand the the range and the number of people that they can contact and also make them more effective when they do it. And Snowflake and the value of, of a $35,000 contribution? Um, the Obama Snowflakes, yes, that's the other that's the other term. For that. Snowflake is what the Obama people call their model of organization. And a Snowflake is actually a single paid field staffer and the volunteer network he builds out around him. So this is kind of geeky and, and, and gets into math, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to do we it. We love geek and math and process on polyoptic. But the idea is, um, you know, last year all Obama's big fundraisers pushed their, their big donors really hard to donate the maximum $35,800 that you can donate in a year um, right, up, right up front. And that's 5000 of the candidate, 30800 of the party committee because that would cover the salary of one paid field staffer uh, who would be the center of what they call a snowflake. Uh, that paid field staffer, in turn, would recruit five to ten uh, unpaid neighborhood team leaders. Uh, and these are the kind of gung-ho uh, super volunteers that Obama got last time around that work sometimes 40, 60, 80 hours a week for free on behalf of the candidate or big organizers. Uh, each of these people, in turn, would get five people of their own, their team leaders, and each team leader would have to recruit 20 volunteers. So you think about that, it's sort of like a snowflake spreading out from the inside. Now, they have very complicated metrics, and they, they think that every, uh, every snowflake is essentially 500 people. It's 501 if you count the paid field staffer. And over the course of a year, each snowflake can make 75,000 75, voter contacts. Um, the campaign assumes a 20% conversion rate, 
I'm really geeking out here. But no, no problem. <laughs> geek out. This is radio. You a, can a geek out as much as you want. A, a 20% conversion rate from those 75,000 contacts, that yields 15,000 voters for Obama. Now, a lot of those people probably would have voted for Obama anyway. The way the campaign does the math, as I understand it, is they figure out of those 15,000 voters, about 1,000 of them are people who wouldn't have voted for Obama but for this canvassing snowflake effort. And so if you think about that, you have Obama snowflakes spread all over the country. The more snowflakes you have, the higher vote margin you're going to have. And, and I think the thinking and the, the, the strategy on Messina's part is that in a close election, uh, this could really make the difference. And that's the lesson they thought they learned last time around. And it's, it's what they're doing this time around sort of on steroids. I found it fascinating, Josh, that you have Google Executive Chairman Eric Schmidt telling Messina, hire innovators, not political people, to, to build out this infrastructure. Uh, you have Steve, Steve Jobs, the late Steve Jobs, telling him that mobile is going to be the next big thing on the, on the campaign. And what struck me interesting about that was, is from what I understand, the 08 campaign, you know, to get a bumper sticker, you gave your cell phone number to get into a rally. You gave your cell phone number, and then at that moment when you were leaving the rally at your at your peak of frothy excitement, you got pinged with a text asking you to donate in, in amounts small and medium. So mobile and Facebook and social media was used very effectively, obviously, in 2008. How are they doubling down? How is this year going to be even more more tech focused and social media focused. Well, Schmidt. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the sort of celebrity CEOs there. Uh, one of the things Messina did was he, he believes that the job of a, a presidential campaign manager in the modern age is more like the CEO of some fast growing tech company like a Facebook or a Groupon than it is the traditional image of a campaign manager who you know in the olden days was a guy with a cigar and a pile of money and a map sitting in some smoky back room making decisions based on gut instinct. So Messina, when he got the job a year and a half ago, went out and did a kind of a tour where uh, he went and you know met with, with Steve Jobs, who talked about mobile technology and how you had to reach voters across platforms uh, that didn't exist four years ago. Uh, Tumblr, Google+, um, there was Facebook, but now it's bigger. There was Twitter, but now it's bigger. Uh, and, and Schmidt, you'd mentioned also from Google, had just stepped down as the day-to-day -day CEO and passed the reins to Larry Page. And he, he's an interesting character. He's emerged as a sort of management coach and CEO guru to the Obama campaign, has become good friends with Messina in particular. And Schmidt has a kind of a sermon he likes to give about how much the world has changed since the last election in terms of technology. So four years ago, Schmidt says in the piece, you know, you had 100, 100 million, 200 million people on Facebook, but they tended to be teenagers and college students, maybe some reporters, but, you know, it was what he called the 1%. Four years later, there are 900 million Facebook users, and the fastest growing segment are people over 50. Um, same thing is true with Twitter. It was small before, it's huge now. So Schmidt's contention is four years ago, for as good a job as the Obama folks did with campaign technology, it was a tool that was limited in its applicability. Now, the whole world is on social media, or, or enough of it, that you can really make it the centerpiece of a presidential campaign, knowing that you'll reach not just tech-savvy college students, uh, but also their parents and grandparents. So when it so, comes to telling their story, the Romney campaign is up against Steven Spielberg, uh, <laughs> you know, who, who advised the Obama campaign and Messina on storytelling. Who does Romney talk to about this stuff? 
Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, one that's of the guys he talks question. to is his longtime uh, you know, or advisor and longtime ad guy, Stu Stevens. Um, you know, traditional politics guy, but very clever, clever strategist. Um, the Romney campaign generally is much more uh, buttoned down and closed shop uh, than the Obama campaign has been. You know, they don't. You know, all glory goes to the candidate. Uh, you know, there've been newspaper stories saying that. Romney gets angry when his staff talks about process or when they kind of glorify themselves at his expense. Um, you both remember the debate coach he had briefly before yes. the Florida primary. What was his name? His name is already forgotten. I, I've already forgotten, too, but I do remember that he was glowingly <laughs> written about in the New York Times. And then he was no longer Out of a job a, a couple of days later. So the two campaigns have taken a different approach, not just to social media and campaigning, um, but also to kind of how they uh, present themselves to the press corps. So, so Romney is more of a mystery. I think the one thing we do know is that he isn't making this big social media effort uh, and that he's running a little bit more of a traditional type of campaign where you do raise a lot of money, which, which both sides are trying to do. Um, but he seems to be focused more on television advertising, more on the kind of ordinary political metrics, and not so much on expanding into social media and trying to do the you know, newfangled grassroots campaigns the way the Obama folks are. That so was Brett O'Donnell, by the way. The Brett, Brett O'Donnell. O'Donnell that's Brett right. O'Donnell. That's right. Brett O'Donnell. Exactly. What? The late, the late <laughs> great Brett O'Donnell. And real quick, Joshua, the, the, how does this all affect the way the Obama campaign will use traditional media? Need the, they need it less? You know, I'm not sure. I think their argument would be, yes, that they need it less. Um, I think that they think that new media is, in a lot of ways, it's more effective. Um, if you, you know, the reason that, that uh, and corporations and marketers and things like that are excited about social media is that getting a recommendation from your friend on Facebook uh, is more persuasive than seeing an ad on television. I think the hope in the Obama camp is that the same thing holds true for politics, that if you hear that you know, Mitt Romney was a terrible, mean executive or CEO of Bain Capital who fired people, if you hear that from your friend, uh, either who's sharing you know, an Obama online ad or a news story or something like that, it's going to be more persuasive than a 60, 30-second ad on television will be. So I think there's an element of that. Um, but it, it's also true, I think, that Romney and his, his super PAC allies are just going to have more money to spend on, on TV, on 30-second ads, and that the Obama campaign, and this is what they argued to me, you know, needs to be more ruthlessly efficient and effective, uh, and that technology is one, one way that they can do that, and that that's necessary not only to compete with Romney's bigger war chest, um, but, but from their point of view, hopefully to prevail if it turns out to be a close election. So let's talk about some of those other ways that you that you write about. I mean, I'm watching uh, Sesame Street with my four-year-old, and the old uh, uh, segment comes on, one of these things is not like the other. Uh, so you're writing about some very well-known people in your piece, Josh, Steven Spielberg, Eric Schmidt, Steve Jobs, and Anna Winter. Uh, now, uh, in the context of your, of your reporting for Bloomberg Businessweek, uh, you could say that they're all part of new media, but Anna seems to have told Messina that she could that the campaign could derive great riches from selling uh, branded merchandise Vera Wang Diane von Furstenberg uh, Tory Burch uh, uh, material uh, was that just too delicious a stuff to leave out of the article that was so focused on tech well, it was definitely too delicious to leave out um, but but it does kind of fall under the broader rubric of Obama going out and talking to you know CEOs business leaders uh, and, and kind of taking their best practices and um, 
Messina was really dazzled by Anna Wintour, uh, not because of her, of her fashion sense, because she convinced him that, listen, what, what, is, what do presidential campaigns sell when they sell merchandise? They sell T-shirts. Every, every Obama voter, every college kid from 2008 had an Obama T-shirt. And the argument she made, and she, she did this uh, not just, not just um, you know, in person, but with a spreadsheet that kind of laid this all out, was that this is potentially uh, a very big revenue source for you and also a way to kind of get people, young people, excited about the Obama campaign. But from Messina's point of view, it was, it was really the revenue. So if you go on their website, uh, it's kind of hilarious what they have to offer, but you can buy a $75 Tory Burch Obama-branded handbag or, uh, you know, a, a $20... Obama soy candle to like you know burn while you're taking your bubble bath, um, but what all these things have in common is that they're really really expensive, and so the margin, the profit margin for the campaign is a lot greater. So from Messina's standpoint, that's just an, an additional revenue source that helps him uh, bring money into the campaign coffers and compete with Mitt Romney. Your writing is fresh enough that you sort of pick up on some of the the blowback that has uh, been engendered by Anna Winter's involvement in the fundraising effort, and you have, put it lightly. Yeah. And you have David Plouffe, uh Obama's senior advisor, and I'm not sure when this quote came from, saying it doesn't matter what the set of Morning Joe has to say about it, but if you're a 45 year old swing voter in Toledo, Ohio, what are you seeing? What's in your local newspaper? What ads are running? And that's what's going into the field direction. That's what really matters. So I feel from your writing that people like Messina and Pluff are saying, look, uh, people who the, the commentariat may may give some blowback to some of these tactics, but it's working uh, in the middle. Is that what you're what you were hearing in your report? That is their comment. To, yeah. To, to, to me as a member of the commentariat. Yeah. It's that, you know, you in the Beltway think you're you're all so important and you understand everything and what you say matters. And it really doesn't. And, and their uh, contention is that what really matters are the opinions of a handful of swing voters in maybe seven, eight, nine, ten swing states, and that these aren't the type of people who, uh, hopefully they listen to Sirius Radio, but who don't watch Morning Joe, who don't listen to pundits blathering on cable television, and get their information different ways. And so their hope is that these Bain ads, uh, to use an example in the piece, translate and filter down to people who don't have a lot of information about Mitt Romney, who are just now beginning to form their opinions of Mitt Romney, and, and whose opinions will be influenced by the kinds of ads uh, and stories that are resulting from those ads that you're now starting to see all over the country, but, but especially in these local markets. That, that's just fascinating, Josh. And, and most fascinating that comes through in your piece, uh, Obama's campaign manager has a president to sell about really Jim Messina and the the mentors that he's adopted over the last two plus years that he has take on, taken on this role of helping of running Obama's reelect is the story of this of this man from Denver himself and uh, from Denver, Colorado. Can you wrap up our conversation with you by sort of giving your sense of this evolution that that this political tactician, this alley fighter Jim Messina has made as he has taken on these mentors from Silicon Valley in New York City? Yeah, I mean, Messina's an interesting guy. Uh, you know, the Obama team, is, as we all know, is a very tight-knit, um, insular group, and Messina actually came to it late. Uh, he was, uh, he's a Montana guy, or Montana politics guy. Max uh, Baucus. Been, yeah, Max Baucus, longtime chief of staff, campaign manager, whose reputation really was for being a kind of a politi- political fixer on Capitol Hill. 
Um, he was brought in late in the Obama 2008 campaign for the general to serve, essentially to serve as David Plus deputy. He was brought in, I, I believe, by Pete Rouse. Um, and he, he, was, he was a new guy who kind of came in and, and managed to kind of fit into that family and obviously won the trust of the president. Uh, he worked in the White House as Rahm Emanuel's deputy. And when it came time to run the reelect, Plus didn't want to do it again. And so Messina got tapped to do this. So uh, he's somebody who's interesting in the sense that I don't think you often see Hill veterans running presidential campaigns, but he's someone who does have a lot of experience running uh, campaigns out in states, out at the Senate level. Um, so it's an interesting combination of kind of Washington insider political fi fixer expertise uh, and, and also somebody who's worked and run races uh, out in the rest of the country. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see if he can pull it off. So from Jim Messina to Harper Reid and all the characters in between in the Obama reelect headquarters, Joshua Green, Bloomberg Business Week with a great story out this week. We'll put it on polyoptics.com or at least link to it so that you can all go to the Bloomberg Business Week website. Obama's CEO, Jim Messina, has a president to sell. Joshua Green, thanks so much for stopping by and spending a few minutes with us. Great to be with you guys. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.